Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. I really just want to pick up this week with where we were in the last lesson. The title of the last lesson, I mean, it was still under the the category of footsteps of Messiah, but the question was, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? And so we're going to recap some things for anybody who might be jumping in new. And for those of us who have been hearing it over and over, at my age, it never hurts to hear something again because I can forget things. I found that out (laughs) just yesterday, how easy it is to forget things that we didn't think we should forget. At any rate, we're going to continue answering that question. How far gone is the night? Because the text of that question comes from Isaiah 21, 11 through 12. Isaiah 21, 11 through 12, if you wanted to follow along in your Bible. Uh, when you read it in the, your Bible, though, it doesn't always help you out by dividing the passage out into its couplets. This passage is written in couplets there would be repetition of the idea within the couplet. In the case of the second couplet, it's verbatim. It's identical to the first question, watchman, how far gone is the night? And so if you're reading in that passage of Isaiah 21, 11 through 12, if you can copy it over into a notebook or on a a sheet of notepaper, if you can go ahead and divide it and divide it into these sections, and, and I'm going to read from the New American Standard, not because I believe there's, you know, it's a superior translation or anything like that. I don't think it's superior. I just think it's one of the easiest to understand for everyone. And you guys know if there's something important that we need to go back into the Hebrew text, we'll go right back into the Hebrew text or even the Greek text if that's important. Uh, at this point, though, we're trying to do the best we can to speak in unknown town. So let's let's divide out the couplets here, and then it makes it easier to see repetitions. And if you've been paying attention up until now, you've heard me sneaking in these Bible study clues. You've heard me sneaking in the, the tools and the techniques that will make you a better student of the Word. And these are things that maybe a pastor would learn in a seminary or Surely the rabbi would learn them in a yeshiva. The layperson doesn't always have access to these tools, but anybody can use them. They're very easy. You don't have to go to college. You don't have to go to graduate school. You can pick up six or seven easy techniques, which is one of the points of me writing Workbook One of the Creation Gospel. Not just that it's a beautiful scriptural paradigm, but also I can kind of sneak in there these hermeneutical tools to make better students called uh, the rule of first mention, the rule of progressive mention, the rule of complete mention, uh, context, chiasms. 
those sorts of things are important for the student to know because you won't always have a helper sitting right there with you to coach you through a difficult text. And so if you can learn to use these tools yourself, you become much more skilled and it it really makes your Bible reading vibrant over time. So we divide this out into its couplets. It starts out the pronouncement concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. That's the first couplet. So you want to leave a little space there. So as you go back to it later, you can still identify the couplets. The next is Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? Right, that's the second couplet. And that's the one I said that is identical. The two uh, questions are word for word. So you would want to skip a little bit of space. And the watchman says, morning comes, but also the night. If you would inquire, inquire. Right, That was a little harder to see, but it's still a couplet. Uh, because what we're going to do is we're going to kind of decode what is he talking about morning and night? What does the night mean? What does the morning mean? Who is this watchman? Well, morning comes, well, if the night is the exile and the morning is the end of the exile, then the end of an exile is coming, but unfortunately, also the night, another exile will come after that. The implication there is there would be two exiles. And of course, we know Isaiah at this point He's prophesying about the Babylonian exile. So he's prophesying here, there will be an end to the Babylonian exile. The day will break. But before you get too happy, understand that somewhere in history, there will be another exile. And we're going to see how this second exile, which we're still in, is connected to the first exile, the exile under the king of Babylon. And then the next statement here is, if you would inquire, inquire. So it's a little bit of a play on word in that part of the prophecy. He's saying, are you asking me about the end of the night? He's saying, inquire, inquire about the end of the night. But then he doubles it. He says, inquire. You're going to need to inquire again. And then he closes it out by saying pretty much the same thing. He says, come back again come back again. You're going to inquire. There will be an end of the night, but then there will be another night after the first exile is broken. So you'll have to come back again and ask me. And that's what we're doing right now. We're going back to Isaiah and we're saying, watchman, how far gone is the night? Because we know that second watchman, how far gone is the night applies to us. We are still in exile unless we are in Israel unless the tribes are settled in their land, unless King Messiah is on the throne, unless the temple is functioning with its priesthood, then we're still in some part of the night. We're still in some part of the exile. So we have to ask, watchman, how far gone is the night? Because we've already been told the morning was coming, the Babylonian exile ended, but then there would be another one, which we know is the Roman exile, the one that we're under right now. So he says, inquire, and we're inquiring. 
We have come back again. Yeshua will come back again, but we have to inquire again. So to to understand this, we really need to review the beast kingdoms. And I know some of you have this memorized backward and forward. You could teach it to me. Uh, You have it nailed down so tightly, but not everybody does. So let's just very briefly go over the beast kingdoms, the progression of the beast kingdoms, because not really everyone understands what Daniel is seeing and that there's two visions in Daniel that you you pretty much have to put together in order to see the total image of the beast so that you can understand the image of the beast that John is seeing in the book of Revelation. In other words, we need to understand the first beast kingdom so we can understand the last beast kingdom because it says in Revelation that the last beast will perform his deceiving signs in the presence of the first beast. Well, we know on the image, the first beast is Babylon. And that explains why, as as we're reading in Revelation, it says Babylon the Great is fallen, fallen. Just like we see these couplets here in Isaiah 21, 11, and 12. The pronouncement concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Now, Edom and Seir are Esau, and prophetically, this is the equivalent of the last beast kingdom, which is Rome, the red one. Just like there's a red dragon and a red beast in Revelation, you're supposed to know that that is the Roman kingdom. And you say, well, that Roman empire is wiped out. No, it isn't. All those systems are preserved in all the nations. They have preserved elements of those beast systems among the nations. So it's not really gone yet. And we're in exile among the nations. So the exile of Rome really isn't over. So in that beast image that that King Nebuchadnezzar saw, he was the golden head. He sees the image of a man. The head is golden. And so if this is the first kingdom that will fall, Babylon the Great is fallen. Remember, it says Babylon the Great is fallen. Fallen. So Babylon, from the beginning, is still present at the end with this last beast kingdom, with this last beast who's going to perform his signs in the presence of the first beast. So the red beast of Rome, the red one, the red beast, he will perform his signs in the presence of the first beast, which is Babylon. So in that respect, Babylon the Great will be fallen, fallen. It has fallen in the past, and it will fall again when Rome falls, because it's part of one image, just one image. And that's it helps to, to read that first vision first of King Nebuchadnezzar, because remember, uh, he has this vision, and in this vision, he has a head of gold, and then he sees the Medo-Persian kingdom with the upper torso of silver. And that's the bear. The golden head was the lion. The, the silver upper torso is the bear. And then he sees the bronze belly of Greece. And then he sees the iron legs of Rome. And that particular, and of course, the, the bronze beast was the, the leopard. And then the iron legs 
it was a composite beast. He was fearsome, fearsome, terrible looking monster because he's kind of a conglomeration of the first three beasts. And so King Nebuchadnezzar tells this vision to Daniel and Daniel explains that these will be empires that come after him. He's the golden head, but then he's going to be defeated by Medo-Persia. They're going to be defeated by Greece. They're going to be defeated by Rome. And then the nations will be broken up from there after the empire itself is broken up, but it will continue to exist by setting its systems among the nations of the earth. And so the beast can still do its work in that way among systems rather than a single empire. It infests all of them. But that image of the human being, it was one man. It's the image of a man. Although it's also at the very same time, the image of the beast. And if you'll remember how King Nebuchadnezzar got around that vision, because now King Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, well, you're telling me that I'm going to lose my empire to the Medes and the Persians. I don't want to do that. So he makes this image of a man, this image of himself, all of gold. It's a completely golden image. And he says, you know what, if I can get representatives from every nation to come in and bow down to my image, my golden image, then my golden kingdom will last forever. And the, the representatives from Israel were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, if they'll just bow down and worship this image, all of gold, then I will rule the Mount of the Moed. I will rule Jerusalem. And we know that backfired. We know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow. They wouldn't do it. And therefore, um, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom could not go on forever. And temporarily, at least, King Nebuchadnezzar repented. Temporarily. Uh, he's always scheming, just like, you know, he sees the Daniel interprets the vision. He says, oh, OK, that just gives me a better idea. <laughs> he gives he gets better at sinning. right? <laughs> he gets better at pride and arrogance. He gets better at blasphemy. Um, and some people are like that. If, if you show them where they were wrong, then they just figure out a new way to do it. That's not exactly that way. And in uh, Daniel chapter four, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar was he was turned into a crazy beast. That's what the Holy One had to do to him to completely break him and bring him to a place of repentance. And Daniel later reminds King Belshazzar, who's the last uh, lion king, the last king of Babylon, when he sees the handwriting on the wall, Daniel reminds Belshazzar, you, you know about all this. You know what it took to break down King Nebuchadnezzar, so that he would repent before the Holy One of Israel. And here you are bringing out the holy vessels of the temple and celebrating and partying because you don't think Israel's God will take the Jews back to their own land and let them rebuild their temple. You're going to lose your empire tonight. You'll lose your kingdom tonight because of that blasphemy. And we see that pattern in Revelation. If you kind of just read through the book of Revelation completely without stopping to you know, study too much, just read it through to get a good overview of it. What you come away with is an understanding that there are human beings who will not repent. There are human beings, like Yeshua said to the, the assembly of Laodicea about being lukewarm, that they need to repent. I mean, you can know Yeshua and be only lukewarm. 
about loving him and his commandments. And he says, you're going to need to repent. If you're going to endure what comes next, you need to repent because I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'll vomit you out. Well, in Revelation, there are human beings that will not repent or they're only going to repent superficially. And we'll know they're superficial because they will turn and worship the image of the beast. And so the book of Revelation tells us the story about how those human beings will be completely broken. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to have to turn them into a crazy beast in order to get their attention to see if they will or won't repent. But if Babylon the Great falls, remember fallen, fallen, then all the beast empires will fall with it. Because remember, it's one image. It's just one image. Or empires, one image. Then if Babylon the Great falls, then all the beast empires will fall within it. Everything from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome and any of the, the systems within the nations all of those things are going to fall. So if the golden head falls, then we know the Roman feet will fall. If the Roman feet fall, then also the golden head will fall. It will fall, fall, first and last. It will fall, fall. If the last beast performs his signs and wonders in the, the presence of the first beast, then they have to fall, fall. One image, right? Multiple empires. But that does help us if we can see this as one human image, because that remember, the number of man is also the number of the beast. If we can see that it's one image, then it'll make better sense to us how that last beast could perform his signs in the presence of the first beast. Roman Babylon, first and last. And I just had to put this pun into the newsletter. This It was just too good to pass up. And I know it's horrible, but I said, uh, the feet don't roam too far from the head. Okay, so I probably won't ever tell that one again. I know it's hard <laughs> to, to hear that. But yeah, the the feet are going to have to go where the head tells it to go. That's That's the way a human being works. And that's the way a beast works. So Edom is Rome the last beast kingdom and its feet are standing upon the earth. And remember these feet, the, the iron of Rome, their systems are mixed with the clay, which is the peoples of the earth. And in the vision, we saw that it was shattered by the stone of Israel. That's King Messiah. And all the beast kingdoms that are attached to that golden head of Babylon, they're going to fall too from the head to the feet. The night watchman, and that's, again, while we were reading Isaiah 21, 11 through 12, it's the, the night watchmen who are being consulted in both exiles, in the Babylonian exile, and then in this current Roman exile. You go to the watchman and you say, how far gone is the night? If you want to know where you are, if you want to know how soon the dawn is coming, that's where you go. Because remember, the watchman, there's a couple of different words in Hebrew. Um, one of them is shomer. Shomer, it's to guard and keep, just like you guard and you keep the commandments, right? It's a guardian. 
The other is Savav, or Savav, the Sovavim. And Savav, its first mention takes you all the way back to the rivers of Eden. And it describes how the rivers of Eden circled the garden. They go round and round. And then Yeshua identified himself as those rivers of Eden because it says they gave drink to the whole garden. What does Yeshua say at Sukkot? He stands up and he says, come to me if you're thirsty and I will give you drink. Exact same phrasing. Uh, exact same phrasing as it concerns the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness that gave them water. It says it gave them drink. Gave them drink. And we know Yeshua was the rock in the wilderness. So he was there from the garden. He was this, this spiritual encircling rivers of Eden talking of the Holy Spirit and how it works in our lives and how it empowers us, how it guards us, how it keeps us. And that's what these watchmen do. They circle us, they encircle the city, the holy city, they guard us and they keep us. And so this is who you consult if you want to know how far gone the night is. You go to the Sovavim or the Shomrim, those who are guarding and keeping even during the night. Because they're skilled. They're skilled in knowing the times and the seasons as they turn in their cycle. Uh, you've all seen probably the, the speeded up time-lapse video of the heavens as the earth is turning. And you watch the movement of the stars and the planets across the sky. Well, this is what the, the night watchmen do. The, the witness is in the stars. And so if the stone of Israel is going to shatter the beast kingdoms that are attached to the golden head, then the night watchmen are going to be those we go to to say, is it close? Is the time close? Because they're watching the turn of these Moedim, the cycles of the Moedim that go round and round like the rivers of Eden. In fact, it looks like all seven beasts are keyed to the rivers of Eden. And these, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, planets, these Moedim were set in place on the fourth day of creation. That's when the sun, the moon, and the stars were put in place. Scripture says, for the sake of the Moedim. Now, often in your English Bible, you'll see that translated as seasons. But the Hebrew word there is Moedim, the sun, the moon, and the stars, for the sake of the Moedim. So the night watchmen are those who watch these stellar movements during the exiles. These are those who have an awareness. They still have a spiritual awareness, even when so many may have been lost in the darkness, may have become lukewarm in the darkness. The watchmen will not go lukewarm in the darkness. They are watching these stellar movements during the night. So that's why they're associated with the night. They know the cycles of the feasts. And originally these stars were put into place. It, again, it says for the sake of the Moedim, if we go back to day four of creation, for the sake of the Moedim, why are the stars there? For the sake of the Moedim. And they're also symbols of the sons and the daughters of Abraham. These stars were supposed to sing. They were supposed to be witnesses to the Moedim, and they would be assigned to the whole world because as the world turned, every nation all over the world, even before there were nations and human beings, the idea was as the world turned, 
that every single person in every single nation would be able to look up to the stars and know the signs of the Moedim. And it's so distressing when we read in the book of Revelation that many of those stars are going to fall because they fall under the influence of the beast. And remember, the beast derives his authority from the dragon. And what does the dragon do? He's up in the heavenlies and his tail, it says, it sweeps them out and they fall from the sky. They lost their witness. They lost their testimony to the Moedim. That's what they were created to do. Because when we testify to the Moedim, when we become witnesses, not just to the feasts of Adonai, but witnesses of the feast. In other words, we do them. We don't just know about them. We do the feasts. Then we become the watchmen of the night. We become the sons and daughters of Abraham. We're, we're singing our witness to the whole world. And of course, what does the dragon want to do? He wants to cause as many to fall as possibly can. And there's a reason for this. And this is also in Isaiah. Isaiah really clarifies so much of Revelation for us as it concerns the relationship between Babylon and Rome. From ancient times, the constellations of the sky have been corrupted by the beast and they've been corrupted into astrology, sorcery, fortune telling, all kinds of the occult. It's twisted the good news because remember the good news in the book of Nahum 115, it says how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Keep your feasts, O Judah. The feasts were set in place to proclaim the good news of Messiah, the good news of salvation, redemption, consecration sanctification, all of these things were prophesied by the stars. And we have to have that same witness in us as children of Abraham. We have to proclaim the good news. And part of that good news, according to Nahum 115, is proclaiming and not just knowing, not just if we're the night watchman, we don't just know what they are. We're doing them. We are witnesses of them not just to them, witnesses of them. Because see, the good news has been twisted. That's what the dragon always wants to do. That's what a serpent does. It twists. A serpent is out of balance unless it's twisted. Do you ever realize that? If you try to pick a snake up, whether you just pick it up or whether you use a stick to pick it up, I have to do that sometimes to get them moved back away from our house and take them out to the pasture. They're not bad snakes. They're just cow snakes and garden snakes. I wouldn't do that with a dangerous snake. I do something else. But these are good snakes in terms of how they help us around the house with mice and moles and, and things like that. And so if you pick one of those up to carry it somewhere else and give it a new address, hopefully, they, they have to twist in order to maintain their balance while you're moving them. You know, if you see somebody who likes to handle snakes, I'm not a snake handler for sure, but some people don't mind handling a state snake. And you know, if they pick a snake up, it doesn't just go straight. You might see one straightened out on the pavement, maybe taking a sun bath, but normally a, a snake is going to have to curl in order to try to maintain its balance. And see, that's not us. We don't twist to maintain balance. We are called Yeshurun, 
in the Bible, which means the straight ones. We have a straight testimony. We don't twist the good news. We don't twist the feasts. We don't make up new ones or replace the authentic ones with fake ones. We keep his feasts and we proclaim that good news by doing it. And it's it's not by random that it says how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Because remember, Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, those are your foot festivals. What is the, the last bit of the exile? It's the iron and clay feet of the beast, the feet. As long as the beast has his feet upon the nations, especially upon the holy mountain of Jerusalem, he believes he can control the nations, that he can prevent them from inquiring about the good news about the Moedim, about how proclaiming the Moedim is to proclaim the king of the universe, that yod heh the Adonai, he is God. The serpent is not, the beast is not, and we are certainly not our own gods. Instead, we witness to the king of the universe, our creator, not the created. So those constellations have been important. You know, when the encampments of the Israelites were set in the wilderness, that was part of the, the message of these children of Abraham, that they would proclaim the good news, the kind of reflecting what their job was up in the heavenlies. And so when you looked up into the heavenlies, you would see these 12 signs. You would see these 12 symbols of the good news because each represented a tribe of Israel, that the good news would reside within these, these faithful human beings. And of course, the occult takes these signs and turns the, and starts worshiping the created, starts corrupting the good news, fails to teach the Moedim or keep the Moedim. And so when the, the 12 tribes did that too, when they failed to maintain that message, of course, they were scattered and they were lost. So the message in the stars as a result was also corrupted and turned to deceit. If it wasn't bad enough already, it became much worse when the tribes of Israel lost their identity and they lost their witness. And it's the king of Babylon who has always wanted to, to get his head above the height of the clouds. And who are the clouds? Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, remember, they walked in the clouds. That was in our, our readings today at our congregation where Paul reminds the Corinthians, we were all under the cloud in the wilderness. It wasn't just the cloud that led Israel. It's the, the cloud or the Sukkot of glory that they walked in. And the king of Babylon, it's always been his idea. If I, if I can stick my golden head above the clouds if I can raise my authority over these clouds and I can put my thumb down on these clouds, then I'm the king. I'm the king of the universe. I'm the eternal king. My kingdom will never end. And see, most people, when they, when they don't observe the feasts of Adonai or when they choose not to know about those feasts, some people, they just don't know what they don't know. But other people, they, they, they're these lukewarm. They kind of know, but no. It's so much easier not to keep the feast because it really does set you apart. 
But that's our job. That's our witness. If we're stars, we have to witness. But when we let the king of Babylon prevent us from keeping the Moedim, he does have his, not just his thumb, he's got his feet on us. He has stuck his head above the height of the clouds, the clouds of glory, the tribes of Israel. And that's always been his, his thing that he wanted to do. He wanted to change the times and the seasons on the Mount of the Moed in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the focal point of these Moedim. Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, on your feet. They're called foot festivals. Chagim, Reglaim in Hebrew, you have to walk up there for those three feasts. He says, you know what? If I can destroy their temple, if I can control the area of the Temple Mount, then I can rule the world. I can keep my old golden head stuck up there. So let's read, if you still have your Bible, let's read Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Let's back up just a little bit from Isaiah 21, because we want to see by going back a little bit, we'll see why Isaiah 21 is significant, because it will reveal the motive of the king of Babylon, who is going to fall, fall. So Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, it says, how you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who defeated the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly. That word there is moed. He's talking about the temple mount, the mount of the moed, and the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Hmm. So the king of Babylon has always wanted to be the star of the morning and the son of the dawn. Because remember, that's Yeshua's title. He's King Messiah. He's the one who breaks the exile and brings freedom to Israel. He's the one who takes Israel to a place where there's no more sun, moon, or stars because there's light everywhere. That the lamp is the lamb. The authentic star. The authentic son of the dawn is Messiah Yeshua. But the king of Babylon is a deceiver. He's a poser. And Isaiah sees him fall. You have fallen from heaven. You've been cut down to earth, even though you defeated the nations. Because right now, those iron and clay feet are all right on top of the nations. And his purpose from the beginning, he just like in Daniel's interpretation of the king's vision, he always wanted his golden head stuck up there in the heavens. He wanted to raise his throne above the children of Abraham, his throne above the stars of God. He wanted to sit on the, on the Mount of the Moed. He didn't want Adonai to sit there and rule his people and to judge his people and to be with his people, especially when they came up to keep his appointed times, because by doing so, when you keep a feast, you're pretty much putting a billboard in your yard or wherever you happen to keep it. It would be nice if we could all go to Jerusalem at this point, but if you can't, wherever you keep it, it's like you put a, a neon billboard up that said, 
Adonai is the king of the universe. There is no king but him. There is no God but him. There is no Elohim but him. That's what you're saying when you keep the feast. Now see if the king of Babylon can deceive you and move you away from those feasts or move your heart away from them. If you keep them with an empty heart, with a heart of stone, if you don't, if you're, it's not because of your love relationship with Yeshua. If he's not transforming your heart through these feasts, which is the whole point, then you're letting the king of Babylon lift his throne above the stars of God. You've lost your witness. You're a fallen star. You're letting him sit on the Mount of Jerusalem. You're letting him sit on the Mount of the Moed because you lost your witness. You're not, you're not singing Passover. You're not singing Shavuot. You're not singing Sukkot. The stars sing. They sing their message. They sing their witness. You let him ascend above the height of the clouds, which is the, the tribes of Israel going through the wilderness and then settling down. You have allowed him, you, and it's basically, remember, the beast is a human being. It represents the beastly part of us. I will make myself like the most high. It's human beings saying what the feasts are. It's human beings setting the appointed times. It's human beings trying to be God. And he says, you will be brought down to Sheol. You will be brought down to the recesses of the pit. And this is why we have to sing our song so loudly sometimes, so consistently, because many people, the deceit has been sitting on the mountain so long, many people don't even know the appointed times. That's why we have to be faithful. We can't miss Passover. We can't miss Shavuot. We should never miss Sukkot, however we're, we're able to keep it, because if we have asked how far gone is the night and the night watchman says, set up your sukkah, then we have to set up our sukkah to get ready for the end of the exile. This night of exile, we, our job is no different from the 12 tribes of Israel when they camped and lived in unity in the clouds of glory. When they were in the wilderness, they were taught the foot festivals. Pesach, of Shavuot, of Sukkot. They were taught about Jerusalem, the place where he was going to put his name. And so we're no different. Now we're in the wilderness of the peoples where we've been scattered. And if we are going to be like those 12 tribes encamped, we have to be the stars of Abraham. We have to be the witnesses to the appointed times, to the Moedim. But here's the, the thing to be cautious of. When you begin to do the feasts, Number one, if you put your hand to the plow, it's not a good thing to turn back. But once you put your hand to the plow and you begin to sing that song, when you begin to keep the appointed times, the dragon is going to know his time is short. Because if the plot all along involved sitting on the Mount of the Moed, changing the appointed times in order for human beings to worship the dragon, and the beast, the crazy beast within, once we do this, they have to know the time is short. But see, this is part of our purpose. It's part of our purpose. We are to give light to the world in the exile of night. We are to prepare them for the breaking of the dawn. When the true son of the dawn, 
when the true star of the morning will shine forth. And the beauty of that is he's been there the whole time. The morning star, he shines all the time. It's just more distinct in the morning, right? And so the stars at night, that's our job. We need to shine very distinctly until the dawn. Because the beast, he's always going to be around until the end to deceive the nations and say he's the son of the dawn. He's not. And so we have to be careful because if Rome's deceptions are scattered out there among the nations, if there's systems of controlling people and changing times and seasons, if all those systems are at work in order to exalt the image of the man, the image of the beast, then we're going to be affected by them to some extent. Those will be present in our lives to some extent. Remember, it's over the whole world. The feet is touching the whole world. But, you know, we don't have to feed in the pig trough with them because there's deceptions in the pig trough. We want to make sure we're feeding on the food of life the manna in the wilderness. And and as a, that's just one more good reason to eat kosher. We don't want to eat pig food and we don't want to be pigs because you are what you eat, right? Well, there's a a pig trough of Roman deceptions out there that, you know, it contributes to our missing the son of the done because for us who we've read the scriptures and we know what food is and we know what it isn't for a child of Abraham. And so we don't want to miss the end of the exile when the true son of the dawn comes. He's going to bring the end of the exile. He's going to bring the light of the kingdom. In the meantime, we don't eat pigs. Because remember, the boar from the forest, the pig from the forest, in Psalm 80, verse 13, that's thought to be wrong. If you're eating a pig, you're likely also eating his deceptions. So you might have to live with pigs in the exile. It doesn't mean you have to eat pigs. It doesn't mean you have to eat their deceptions. It means you can still shine, even if you are out there with the pigs. So in that that Isaiah verse, if we're going back to Isaiah 21, we have two types of communication. Remember, it's a couplet, so it'll say the same thing twice, just in a little bit different way. So you've got... um, This pronouncement concerning Edom, and that pronouncement in Hebrew is masa, which the the literal translation of it is a burden, to lift up a burden. It's one type of prophecy. The second part of the couplet, one is calling to me from Seir, the burden of Edom, but the calling of Seir. And they, they kind of mean the same thing, but using different words to describe. Because Edom is Seir and Seir is Edom. And they're both seen as Rome. The calling in Hebrew is Kore. Kore. And it's a calling out. If you remember, the book of Leviticus in Hebrew is Vaikra. Vaikra and called. And it doesn't just mean like, yoo-hoo, come here. It's not that kind of calling. This kind of calling is your purpose. This kind of calling is your character. Like when somebody gets named in the Bible, they're calling that name according to the purpose that they expect that baby to have in life. 
So in Vayikra, which is Leviticus, we are called to holiness. It defines our purpose and our character, that of being holy. So this second part of the couplet is the calling of Seir. So let's go back to the first mention of a calling. It's um, going to take us right back to the creation, right back into the first day of creation. It says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So that division of light and darkness, he called it by their purposes. The exile of night, why is it night? Why is it darkness? It, its purpose is to provide an exile because there are things that need to be done in the exile. But the day or the light represents the righteous. There is a gathering of the righteous. That, that's a calling too. Now, as you skip down to the second part of the axis or, or the axis itself, it's a repetition. How far gone is the night? Well, the Holy One never wastes space on the parchment. He knows exactly how much real estate he has, and he uses it precisely. So there is a reason for him to ask the identical question. And that reason is it's restating a purpose, a burden. Your purpose will also supply your burden, by the way. It, it will kind of define what sorts of burdens you will have to carry in order to accomplish that calling or purpose. When you see a repetition like this, often it, it represents that you're going to have two fulfillments of a particular prophecy. It's not just intensifying the statement. It's saying you look for two fulfillments of this. And the question is, how much longer gone, you know, how much longer will the night last? How much longer will this night or this darkness of exile last? Because yes, we're supposed to be a menorah in the night. We are supposed to be lights in the night. Nevertheless, we know that the day and the light should be coming. And at that time, you don't need the lights of the sun, the moon, or the stars, because then we will be seen just like Yeshua. We will see him as he is. The lamp of the lamb is just going to shine out. You don't need the sun, the moon, or the stars. Same thing with us. We don't need the night in order to shine so bright. So we've got this first exile in Babylon, and then there was going to be a Babylon yet to come. How far gone is the night? Well, the, there will be an end to this Babylonian night, but there will be a future Babylon. At the end of the beast kingdoms, this one called Rome or the red one, the red beast. And so that final question, how far gone is the night? Because remember, you have to come back again and ask the question again, telling you there's going to be two exiles. In that last exile, Edom, and therefore Babylon, because remember, Edom is the feet of Babylon. The image of the beast may feel very firm, that it's standing very firmly on the Mount of the Moed, and it, it can never be pried loose. Oddly enough, you know, it's, Israel has technically control of the Temple Mount, and yet it has given that authority over to another nation. And maybe Edom feels very secure on the Mount of the Moed, that it will never be taken. But yet, 
those feet will be shattered into pieces. When the rock sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives, just adjacent to the Temple Mount, it's just going to crumble those clay and iron feet. And the nations, those systems among the nation as well. And that's when the holy Mount of the Moed is going to be restored by King Messiah. So the tribes of Israel can once again encamp in their promised land, where once again they can, with their feet, go up to the foot festivals and proclaim that, that Adonai is the king of the universe. If we look at the third couplet, it emphasizes Genesis 1.5, that it's good to separate the light from the darkness, the evening from the morning, because uh, these watches of the night are times of exile times of preparation for the breaking of the day. So that tells us the one who is inquiring is the one who's alert. And every one of you watching me right now, I think you're one of those. You have inquired of the watchman, how far gone is the night? And then you have become a watchman. You have become alert. You're watching the sky because you know the the end of the exile is close. And so you're keeping your watch, you're keeping the feasts. You're watching the cycle of the feast. Let Passover get behind you, and you're already thinking about, what am I going to do at Shavuot? Let Shavuot get behind you. You're already thinking of the fall feast. You're planning. You're preparing. You're a circling watchman or watchwoman. You know those watches of the night like Daniel. You know the appointed times. You know the the Moedim. Because the second division of light and darkness occurred on day four of creation. It says in Genesis 1.14, Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and they shall serve as signs and for seasons, for Moedim, and for days and years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And to govern, and to govern the day and the night. And we're part of that with Yeshua, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. So this calling and this purpose of light and dark that had already been set in place on day one, he anticipated we would have an exile on day one. That would be silly that we would go back into the darkness. But on the fourth day, He's got these stars. He's got these human beings. He has these lights in the expanse of the heavens. And they have a purpose. They are to separate the day and the night. They are for signs. We are for signs when we keep the feasts. They are for the Moedim. They're part of the Moedim. They're they're at one with them. They don't just witness about them. They become one with them because of the spirit, the transformative spirit that works in them. They give light on the earth, even in the night of exile. And finally, they govern. See, when Yeshua returns, the fourth assembly in Revelation, remember, is Thyatira. And Yeshua tells them, you know, if you can repent, if you can set aside this idolatry and immorality, then I will sit down. The Father is going to give me the authority to sit on the throne. And then I, in turn, I will give you the authority to rule with me, if we will be faithful watchmen and watch women in the exile of the night, 
witness to the Moedim, then he will give some of his authority to us. The symbolism of the stars is important because remember, the children of Abraham, Genesis 15, 5, it says he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall the number of your descendants be. We're these children of Abraham in the heavenlies. And we're ruling. I mean, there's appointed principalities and powers in the heavenlies. We're part of that. It says he made the stars also. It's not just the powers and principalities of heaven that, that he's appointed to do this. We're appointed to do this with them, to serve as lights. And eventually, I think we also signal the end of the darkness. I think when we start keeping the feasts, we are signaling that the, the darkness is fading into the morning, that the exiles are about to come home. This third couplet suggests a morning is coming from the Babylonian exile, and it did. Back in the first exile, the Jews did go back. They rebuilt their temple, the second temple. But remember, the couplet says, but also the night. There was another night of exile that would come. That second exile was initiated when the red beast, when Rome massacred the Jews that were left at Betar in 135 AD, and that occurred on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is right ahead of us. So from Tisha B'Av, 135 AD, when Jews lost self-governance in the land, there's been a long night of exile, but there was a few streaks of light starting in 1948. Even before that, Jews started to go back. They weren't necessarily religious, some of them were, but they started to go back to the land. And if we see that, then we know it's a good possibility that the dawn is beginning to break. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.